Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, October 14th and Sunday, October 15th, 2023. Uh, obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time on Israel-Palestine just to get that uh, said up front. But let's start, as we always do, with a couple of anniversaries. On October 14th, 1066, Duke William of Normandy's army defeated the Anglo-Saxon King Harold Godwinson and his army at the famous Battle of Hastings. William claimed that he'd been promised the Kingdom of England by Edward the Confessor, who died in January of 1066. But Godwinson was elected king by the Anglo-Saxon nobility. Uh, the Normans invaded, and the two armies met outside the town of Hastings. Accounts of the battle vary, but the general story seems to be that after repelling initial Norman attacks, the Saxons made the mistake of pursuing their retreating foe. At that point, William was able to rally his men and turn the tide of the battle. Uh, their victory, the Norman victory, uh, along with Godwinson's death toward the end of the battle, ensured the Norman takeover of England and made Duke William of Normandy into King William I, the Conqueror. Uh, on October 14th, 1322, staying in the British Isles, a Scottish army under Robert the Bruce defeated the English army of King Edward II at the Battle of Old Byland. Uh, this was the largest Scottish victory in battle with English forces since Bannockburn in 1314 and helped to secure Scottish independence. Uh, moving to a different part of Europe, on October 15th, 1529, the Ottoman siege of Vienna ended in a dismal uh, failure for Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. This was one time when he was not very magnificent, wasn't he, folks? Uh, Suleiman marched his army across the Balkans to Vienna, and uh, through no fault of his own, really, it just so happened that 1529 was an extraordinarily rainy Balkan spring, uh, and as Suleiman was marching through the Balkans during that spring, uh, his wagons, his carts, his cannons, his animals all suffered some uh, horrible impact, basically, due to the mud and the wetness. Uh, many of the pack animals died, uh, the cannon, the largest cannon, had to be simply abandoned uh, by the wayside because they couldn't make it through the mud. And so by the time Suleiman's army got to Vienna, it was a wreck already, and it didn't have the kind of cannons that it would have needed to punch holes in Vienna's impressive city walls. Suleiman stuck around for a while, tried valiantly, I guess, to, to do things like undermine the walls um, and starve out uh, the, Vienna. You're not really going to be able to starve out a city that big. Uh, and eventually, uh, by mid-October, with people dropping dead of disease and the Janissaries, the famously temperamental Janissaries, signaling that they were they had had enough, really. This was time to go. Suleiman decided to pack it in and go home. The Ottomans would, of course, never take Vienna. They'd try... Uh, they would try a couple of other times, uh, most famously in uh, the late 17th century uh, in a siege that signaled really the beginning of the end uh, for the Ottomans. Uh, on to the news. In the Middle East, in Israel-Palestine, the Israeli army is now poised to enter Gaza, waiting for a green light from the government that may be hours away or maybe days away. In the meantime, the relentless Israeli bombardment of Gaza has shown no signs of abatement. The death toll from that bombardment uh, at time of writing or at time of recording uh, stood at over 2,670 2, people, uh, according to health officials uh, in Gaza, while Israeli authorities say that they've raised the death toll from last Saturday's militant attack in southern Israel to over 1,400. Uh, Hamas is believed to be holding some 120 hostages uh, taken during the attack, uh, included, um, uh, included among the deaths 
uh, I should say, in Gaza are, according to the Israelis, two senior Hamas commanders who were responsible for that attack. Uh, some 10,000 people in Gaza have been wounded, and another 1,000 are believed to be missing amid the uh, significant amount of rubble. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people have reportedly fled northern Gaza since the Israelis issued their evacuation ultimatum late Thursday, early Friday. Dozens of them have been killed mid-evacuation in a number of incidents alternately attributed to Israeli airstrikes or Hamas terrorism, depending on who's telling the story. There have been too many reports, I think, of airstrikes hitting people trying to evacuate to accept at face value Israeli claims that these deaths were all caused by Hamas. It is particularly hard to believe that while the Israeli military is essentially carpet bombing the rest of Gaza, including southern Gaza, where Israeli authorities told these people to go, it's managed to carve out a special little safe zone just for evacuees. That's a little hard to, to imagine. That said, uh, I suppose the idea that Hamas would use violence or the threat of violence to try to keep people in place cannot be entirely ruled out. Uh, in terms of what those people are fleeing, there have been at least a couple of What's Next pieces published this weekend. The New York Times, as you might expect, delivers all the news that the U.S. and Israeli governments want you to know. According to their account, uh, the current plan is to move into Gaza City and essentially fight street to street and building to building or rubble, rubble pile to rubble pile until Hamas is effectively no more. That is going to take a long time and cost a lot of lives and leaves big questions about what happens to Gaza when it's all over. Uh, over at his Substack, meanwhile, Seymour Hirsch offered his own reporting. Uh, it is behind a paywall, just FYI, that has the Israelis invading over uh, only after they had they've destroyed every building in northern Gaza uh, that includes Gaza City, that territory, and have used bunker buster munitions to try to destroy underground militant facilities. I know everybody has their own opinions on Hirsch these days, and I'm not going to uh, spend any more time on on this report, but. In this case, at least, uh, if he's right, we'll definitely know when those bunker busters start exploding. Uh, so we'll be able to to say pretty conclu conclusively one way or the other. Uh, the Biden administration on Sunday declared that it had convinced the Israeli government to ease its Gaza siege to allow water back into southern Gaza. Uh, I'm sure this was the subject of much backslapping and high-fiving in the White House, but without more detail, it's hard to know how magnanimous this actually is. Uh, water is obviously an ex existential need, but turning the water back on to southern Gaza doesn't actually guarantee that anybody can get to it. Infrastructure all over Gaza has been pulverized, unless we forget the Israelis uh, are still blocking fuel and or electricity, so things like water pumps, assuming they're even still operational, can't be turned on. Uh, efforts to bring more comprehensive humanitarian aid into Gaza remain stymied by the closure of the Rafah checkpoint between Gaza and Egypt. An agreement seems to be in place on Saturday to allow foreign nationals trapped in Gaza to evacuate to Egypt through Rafah, but that deal was apparently quashed when Egyptian officials insisted that, th that they also be allowed to move aid into Gaza. Israeli officials refused. Elsewhere, uh, the water development, meager as it seems without any additional context, may have been the result of some unpleasant reactions to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's discussions with Arab leaders on Sunday. Doing some shuttle diplomacy on behalf of the Israelis, Blinken spoke with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who was actually supposed to meet with Blinken Saturday night but made him sweat it out until Sunday morning, and Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Sisi. And I get the sense he was a little cowed by their reactions. Uh, he certainly did not convince 
convince them to embrace the Biden administration's unconditional support for Israel. Uh, And these are two leaders who are generally pretty friendly with the Israeli government. Messaging from the Biden administration made a clear pivot on Sunday from we're behind Israel 100% to let's keep the spillover carnage to a minimum. And Blinken's experience may have been part of the reason for that. Uh, The Pentagon has deployed a second U.S. aircraft carrier, the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, to the eastern Mediterranean with its strike group. It will join the USS Gerald R. Ford and company in a massive effort to deter anyone, Iran and or its regional clients like Hezbollah and Iraqi militias, who might be thinking about intervening to stop the Israeli obliteration of at least part of Gaza. Uh, the U.S. may also deploy amphib- the amphibious assault ship, which is essentially a small aircraft carrier that can also carry ground forces, USS Bataan, to assist in said obliteration, though what form that assist- assistance might take is unclear. Uh, the steep increase in violence in the West Bank and East Jerusalem continued over the weekend, and as of Saturday, Al Jazeera was reporting that at least 55 Palestinians had been killed and over 1,100 wounded since the militant attacks a week earlier. According to Palestinian officials, Israeli soldiers have been regularly opening fire on civilian cars, and as we've been noting, settlers have been attacking Palestinian communities with impunity, often under the protection of Israeli security forces. Uh, and uh, finally in this section, I try to avoid the word genocide in this newsletter because like terrorism, it has become a politically loaded term that is losing its specific meaning. Uh, exceptions are made, of course, for clear-cut cases like the Holocaust, the Armenian genocide, the Rohingya genocide, and so on. Anyway, while I've been avoiding the term, Israeli Holocaust and genocide scholar Roz Sagel has a new piece in Jewish Currents calling what the Israeli military is doing in Gaza a textbook, that's his word, example of genocide. So who am I to argue with that? Uh, Moving on, in Syria, another apparent Israeli airstrike on Aleppo airport wounded five people late Saturday. The Israelis attacked both Aleppo and Damascus airports on Thursday. You may recall uh, this new attack came after the Israeli military and Palestinian militants traded artillery fire in the occupied Golan region earlier in the day. The airport attacks probably reflect Israeli concerns that Iran is flying arms into Syria for distribution to Hezbollah and various other militias that could then use them to attack Israel. Uh, In Iraq, an apparent Turkish drone strike killed at least three members of the Kurdistan Workers' Party in northern Iraq's Tohuk province on Saturday. Iraqi Kurdish authorities announced the attack. In Lebanon, the Israeli government has closed the Lebanese border to civilians due to ongoing exchanges of artillery fire with Hezbollah. Uh, A Hezbollah artillery strike killed at least one person on Sunday morning, uh, one day after Israeli fire killed at least two civilians in southern Lebanon, and two days after the Israelis killed a journalist and wounded six others. Uh, Sunday's attacks seem to indicate a bit of an escalation on Hezbollah's part, although there's still no indication that either party here is interested in moving beyond artillery exchanges to some Something bigger. The wild card on the border is Palestinian groups that have active Lebanese branches. At least three Hamas fighters were killed trying to cross the border on Saturday, and Israeli efforts to stop potential infiltration may spark a wider conflict. In Iran, speaking of potential escalations, various Iranian officials have in recent days been issuing warnings of a regional war if slash when the Israeli ground offensive begins in Gaza. I think these are empty threats. Uh, Some escalation from Iran and its clients is likely, but I don't think the Iranians want what it sounds like they're threatening. Uh, But I'm not feeling terribly confident in my assumptions on this, just to be clear. Uh, I tried pretty hard not to be alarmist in this newsletter, sometimes to the point of being wrong. I didn't, for example, see the Russian invasion of Ukraine 
Ukrainian Ukraine coming until it actually came, to take the most obvious example. Uh, but even with that in mind, I have to admit the possibility of a regional war, one that could easily escalate into something much bigger given the likelihood of U.S. involvement, is too high for comfort at this point. Uh, in Asia and Azerbaijan, uh, President Ilham Aliyev turned up in Nagorno-Karabakh on Sunday, raising the Azerbaijani flag uh, over the city. I suppose we should start calling Khan Kendi, uh, but that is known to Armenians as Stepanakert and previously served as the capital of the now all but defunct Republic of Artsakh government. Though this situation has been knocked quite decisively from the public consciousness over the past week, According to Politico, Anthony Blinken earlier this month told, quote, a small group of lawmakers, end quote, in the semi-functional U.S. Congress that the Biden administration believes Aliyev could order an invasion of Armenia in the coming weeks. Uh, if he does decide to invade, and I have to say he would have some cover now because of the situation in Gaza, Aliyev would at a minimum be seeking to create that corridor he's long desired between Azerbaijan proper and Nakhchivan through southern Armenia. Uh, if he's feeling more ambitious, he could even try to make good on all that Western Azerbaijan rhetoric he keeps spewing, which asserts a claim over all of Armenia. The congresspersons were unda- understandably curious whether the administration has any plan to try to deter Aliyev, and the answer is apparently that the U.S. is going to stop offering military assistance to Azerbaijan. I'm sure that will really shake him up. Uh, in other words, don't expect any U.S. aircraft carriers in the Black Sea anytime soon. Yes, I realize that the Russian government would never allow that anyway. Uh, it's just a metaphor. In Afghanistan, the Afghan government is reportedly planning to send a delegation to the Belt and Road Forum in Beijing on Tuesday, another indication of its de facto recognition by the Chinese government and a boost to its overall international profile. The Taliban-led government would love to get some Belt and Road infrastructure investment, particularly in relation to exploiting Afghanistan's potential mineral wealth. Uh, Thinking bigger picture, Afghanistan could be brought into the China-Pakistan economic corridor, arguably the core Belt and Road project, though uh, instability and tensions between the Afghan and Pakistani governments might stand in the way of that. Uh, In Pakistan, the Pakistani military raided a militant, presumably Pakistani Taliban, hideout in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province late Saturday, sparking a battle in which six of said militants were killed and eight more wounded. One soldier was also killed. The previous night, unspecified gunmen in Baluchistan province killed six construction workers and wounded two others in the city of Turbat. Uh, As I say, there's no indications to the identity of the attackers, but Baluch separatists have in the past attacked manual laborers uh, who often hail from other parts parts of Pakistan. Uh, In Oceania, New Zealand, Saturday's parliamentary election went as polling suggested it would, with the Conservative National Party and right-wing ACT party likely eking out a collective victory. Labor Party leader and current Prime Minister Chris Hipkins conceded the outcome not long after the polls closed, with his party having lost at least a couple of dozen seats. The votes haven't all been counted yet, and it is possible that the national ACT coalition will be short of an outright majority, in which case they will need support from the far-right New Zealand First Party. Uh, So that sounds like a really good time. Uh, yes. Um, on to Africa and Mali. The Malian junta and the United Nations seem to be on different pages with respect to the withdrawal of UN peacekeepers from northern Mali. The UN cautioned on Saturday that renewed fighting between Malian security forces and coordination of Azawad movements, or CMA, rebels could delay that withdrawal. By Saturday evening, Malian Foreign Minister Abdullah Diop had already responded, saying that Mali's ruling junta 
quote, does not foresee any extension, end quote, of the December 31st withdrawal deadline. According to the UN, the junta has not given it approval to remove equipment from the bases that its forces are leaving. And Diop acknowledged that complaint and insisted that the junta is, quote, working to find solutions, end quote. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, meanwhile, the UN is repatriating nine South African peacekeepers accused, among other things, of sexual assault and of threatening other members of the peacekeeping force who tried to arrest them. This case adds to a disturbingly long list of alleged sexual misconduct by UN peacekeepers around the world, with the DRC having suffered through much of it. Despite that criticism, uh, the UN doesn't have much authority to actually do anything to accuse peacekeepers beyond what it's doing here, sending them home. On to Europe in Ukraine. Various Russian attacks reportedly killed at least six Ukrainian civilians over the weekend. Two of the six were killed in Donetsk Oblast, where the intense Russian assault on the city of Avdivka continued, uh, even as a Ukrainian brigade commander, uh, a man named Dmitry Lysyuk, claimed, uh, on what basis I'm not entirely sure, uh, that the Russian uh, offensive was failing. Who knows? Uh, Two more people were killed in Kharkiv Oblast, where Russian forces have reportedly intensified an operation intended to take the city of Kupiansk. With the Ukrainian advance in Zaporizhia Oblast seemingly stalled, the Russians have stepped up their offensive movements in an attempt to seize one or both of these cities before winter weather begins to make movement more difficult. In Poland, Polish politics may be on the cusp of a sea change as voters on Sunday appear to have unseated the country's right-wing ruling coalition. The main party in that coalition, the Law and Justice Party, looks like it will retain its status as the largest single party in the same, uh, but with substantially fewer seats than it won in 2019. Meanwhile, exit polling suggests that the centrist civic coalition opposition bloc has emerged with a collective 248 seats in the 460-seat legislature, comfortably over the majority threshold. I hesitate to make too much of exit polling, and the results may not be ready until tomorrow or Tuesday, so I'm going to leave this here for now. But suffice to say, this outcome would likely have major ramifications for European Union politics, among many other things. In France, in the wake of Friday's knife attack in the northern French town of Arras, or Arras, I guess, in which a teacher was killed and three other people were wounded, French officials have raised the country's terror alert level and have deployed 7,000 soldiers to beef up security across the country. Uh, The alleged attacker was apparently known to authorities as a potential radicalization threat, and it seems like there was an Islamist element to the stabbing. Uh, The timing may also suggest uh, some sort of connection to the Gaza war, though as far as I know, there hasn't been any link there firmly established. Uh, in the Americas, in Ecuador, Banana Empire Arius, that's that's what he is, Daniel Noboa, has emerged victorious in Sunday's presidential runoff against leftist candidate Luisa Gonzalez. Polling had this race fairly close, and that seems to be how it shook out, with Noboa taking 52% of the head-to-head vote. Uh, Gonzalez ties to former President Rafael Correa, uh, who is well-liked by a portion of Ecuador's electorate, but pretty well-hated by another portion, may have contributed to her defeat. Uh, Nobal will serve out the remainder of outgoing President Guillermo Lasso's term uh, and can theoretically uh, run for re-election uh, in 2025. 
In Colombia, the Israeli government on Sunday summoned that country's ambassador and said it was suspending security exports uh, to the country. Uh, Israeli officials are angry at Colombian President Gustavo Petro, who has spent the past week criticizing the Israeli military operation in Gaza via social media. Petro, for his part, said in response to these Israeli moves that, quote, if we have to suspend foreign relations with Israel, we suspend them, end quote. Colombian security forces use a fair amount of Israeli hardware, so this could force a uh, this could force Petro's government to find a new source for arms and munitions. In the United States, uh, on Saturday, this country experienced its first hate crime connected to the Gaza War when an Illinois man stabbed to death a six-year-old Muslim boy and wounded his mother. Given the rhetoric that's been bandied about in the U.S. since last weekend's attacks in Israel, which has echoes in the weeks immediately following the September 11, 2001 attacks, this may be the first of several such incidents. And finally, earlier this month, Laura Rosen and her diplomatic newsletter published an expose into the origins of a smear campaign against several prominent figures in the U.S.-Iran analyst community that I think should be of interest for what it reveals about the media environment around controversial foreign policy issues. Um, I do have an excerpt here in the newsletter, uh, but I think, you know what, this has been long enough, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it there. Uh, I really recommend you click through. It's a fascinating story. Uh, you know, you talk about how the sausage is made. This is how the sausage is made uh, in places that, uh, let's say, take a lot of Persian Gulf money to uh, discredit anybody calling for diplomacy with Iran. So uh, it's a very interesting read and I think uh, very illustrative of certain aspects of uh, the foreign policy community in this country. So please do check that out. Uh, and with that, um, thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter. Thanks to those of you who are foreign exchange subscribers, especially those of you who are paid foreign exchange subscribers. Uh, couldn't do it without you. And uh, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.